0: Well, the questions we're looking at today are going to be covered in our children's uh, department, our student department, as well here. We're all in the church going to be covering the same type of questions and trying to dig into those so you can have conversation with your kids, your grandkids, or or colleagues or whoever all throughout the building. I have a good friend of mine who I've been getting to know over last year. And as we'd be uh, chatting together, he would just share that there are these idiot Christians who believe stuff like the Bible's true and that God exists. He would tell me about these insurmountable problems like the problem of evil that make a good God totally irrelevant and implausible to believe. And I would ask questions and dialogue and why you think that way. And and he would just talk about how the narrow-minded religious people are ruining the world. And, And we just really got to know each other over the last nine months, year. But about nine months into our friendship he finally started asking me some questions. Like, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I uh, pastor one of those churches for those narrow-minded, religious, ignorant people who haven't thought through their faith. And his jaw drops. He says, wow, you seem so reasonable a moment ago. I said, you know, in my experience, often adults have really good questions that they've had for decades, and they never got a good answer. They never got an intelligent answer to the questions they had as kids. So often the unanswered questions we have as adults are really the unanswered questions we have as kids. So that's what we're going look at today in our series. And if you want to join us again in asking some questions at the end of the, the day today, you can text to 22333. H Church 300, do any follow-up question, any a totally different question that you'd like us to answer in this series. So feel free anytime during the message to text that to be included in the series for the next couple days. But that's our premise of the whole series. Our unanswered questions as adults began as unanswered questions as kids. And my hope is to show you that these insurmountable questions have logical, plausible, and even thoughtful answers. And whether you're asking the question, whether your friends are asking the question, whether your kids are asking the question, your grandkids, how can we begin to be thoughtful in the way we respond to the great questions around us? So we'll begin today, we've grouped all the different questions that we received into the category of that relating somewhat to who God is today. So we'll go through a series of questions and see what really are some answers. The first one's probably the most challenging. Question number one. My name is Emerson, and how do we know God exists? Hi, my name is Cole, and how do we know that God created the earth? So how do we know God exists, and how do we know that God created the earth? This is a great question, and often it's called the cosmological argument or the teleological argument. So if you want to do a little more research on it, those are the big words. I'm not going to be giving you the big words. I'm going to give you a simple way to understand it, both for yourself and for your kids or grandkids. You see, it's like we're we're private eyes or we're Sherlock Holmes. We walk to a situation, and by assessing a situation, you can find out everything's possible, but what is really plausible? What is the potentially most likely to occur? So you walk into a room, and you see a series of dominoes, for example. And you notice that about a third of the way in, the dominoes are knocked over, but the other ones aren't yet. What conclusion could you come to? You would say, well, because this domino got knocked over by that domino, got knocked over by that domino, something happened right here. Right? And you realize, because of the first law of thermodynamics, that energy and matter can't be created, that the dominoes couldn't have created the energy to knock themselves over, you would conclude something outside of the dominoes had to step in and cause this to happen, right? Now, it might be a cat knocked him over. It might be the bass from the drum knocked it over this morning. It might be the wind. But you would conclude that something outside of the game itself knocked it over. Now, in the same way, if we know that matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed, Yet we live in a universe with matter and energy that was created. Something outside of the actual creation has to exist to have started the process. So that's the first thing that philosophers use in discussing that there must be something outside of us. That whatever God is, he is outside of the creation itself. Now immediately this is different from say pantheism or Hinduism that believe that God is outside the world but also in the world. It's a very unique idea, that there had to be something that started this. Also, the idea that if you believe you have free choice, there we go, outside force. (laughs) If you believe you have free choice, meaning you're not just controlled by your DNA, your genetics, and your chemistry. Your chemistry and your genetics can lean you in one direction, but you have the ability to overcome your genetics, overcome your chemistry. You're accessing something that's free from just genetics and chemicals. A plant, right, is restricted to be a plant. But if you can say, no, I have access to freedom, I can occasionally make free decisions that you're accessing something outside of the creation itself. And that idea is that free choice came from something that's free from the creation around us. So free choice is an argument that there is some kind of source of freedom that comes from outside of creation. So whatever God is, he must be outside and he must be free in order for people inside of it to have access to that. So these are, again, different arguments that are made. Now, another one is the chicken or the egg. We all know the classic conundrum. Where did the chicken come from? An egg. Where did the egg come from? A chicken. But Where did the chicken come from? An egg. And the question is, that's in the back of your mind, is at some point there had to have been an unhatched chicken or an unlaid egg. Something that wasn't caused by the thing before it. You say, no, no, evolution's explain it, we just need to go back to a small cell. Okay, well, where did that small cell come from? Even Richard Dawkins has said in his books, The God Delusion, he believes in what's called panspermia, that we cannot create life in a lab here today, so life had to be deposited here from some other planet or some other universe, which just asks the question, well, where did the panspermia come from? At some point, there has to be what's called an uncaused cause something that began the process. You say, well, well, if God existed, well, who made God? Well, whoever made God would be God because the idea of God is something that is uncaused. And that's the idea. God has to be outside, he has to be free, and he has to be uncaused because if something made him, then that thing would be the creator. Another argument for God's existence is from the idea of Design. Maybe you have kids or grandkids that play with Legos, and so there's Legos all over the floor in your basement. If you came back ten years later, and those Legos were suddenly formatted and say, this dragon, what conclusions could you come to? Is it possible an earthquake shook your house and formed that dragon? I guess anything's possible, but is it plausible? When you look at the colors, the frame, the sorting of the colors, the design, the engineering of how the pieces go together, you would say, no, no, no. While it's possible it could have put itself together, it's much more plausible that this came from an artist. Look at the way the colors are sorted. It came from an engineer who thought about how to have the weight distribution hold the whole thing. And it came from a mind. Somebody had to have a vision in their mind of what a dragon is, and the mind of the dragon had to be the shape by which the artist put it together. This is the idea that when you look at your own body, for example, if I had a camera up here, you might say, well, that camera created itself. You'd say, no, somebody made that. And yet, your eyes are the greatest camera that even exists. Even Charles Darwin struggled with whether or not the human eye could have just made itself. Your ears are the greatest microphone that's ever been designed, with all the little bitty bones that make that eardrum move back and forth. Your mouth is one of the greatest speaker systems that's ever been created. If I told you to look at these speakers or look at these microphones, you'd say, well, of course it didn't make itself. When the same way, when you look at your heart, your blood system, the idea that when you see something, it takes that image, flips it upside down, turns into electrical current, and, and pumps it up to a supercomputer sitting in, in your skull, you would say, obviously, there had to be a mind at work, an artist at work, and in the same way, it had to be an engineer. It's this idea that we know God exists because of what we can observe in the creation around us. It must be an artist. Because of the color and the artistry, we see engineering all around us that requires a mind. And there must be a mind involved in order to create something that is so mindful. There's also an argument for goodness. You ever had your kids or you've said to somebody, that's not fair, or you shouldn't act like that? that not just what your culture teaches you to determine what's right and wrong, but there's something over culture that can determine if something's wrong. That even if you grew up in Nazi Germany and you were taught that killing was okay and killing certain people was okay, you'd say, no, even if your culture tells you that, there's still something objectively wrong. That's not right. Where does that objective goodness come from? That transcends time, it transcends space, it transcends culture. Where does that standard of goodness come from that everyone appeals to? Don't cut in, in line for me. That's not fair. You're appealing as if the other person should know there's a standard of goodness by which they're falling short of. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, takes a lot more time than I just did to show how the standard of goodness, the ought, the should, the fairness that we appeal to is an argument that there's something outside of our time and space, outside of our creation that says God is good. So whoever God is, he has to be uncaused, outside of creation, good, an artist, an engineer, and have a mind. In fact, the Bible says it that way, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the atmosphere, the things you can observe show his handiwork. There's evidence all around us that he made the world. If we take a moment and look and think and observe, think about not just what's possible, but what is the most probable. All right, let's move to question number two. What's question number two got for us today? Hi, my name is Griffin, and um, is God a boy or a girl? (laughs) Is God a boy or a girl? Let me tell you how Jesus answered this question. Jesus was talking to a woman, um, and they were having kind of a theological debate on this. And here's what he says He says, I want you to learn how to worship the Father in spirit and truth, for God is spirit. So God does not have a body until he became Jesus, what the Bible says. He is a spirit. Now this is very unique. Almost every religion that's ever existed, people made their gods. They were statues for the Romans, for the Greeks, for the Mesopotamians, for the Canaanites. The God of Judaism and the God of Christianity is a God is spirit. However, Jesus says he primarily relates to us as a father figure. So I guess in that sense, he's a man. But he's really not a man in the sense of male or female. He's a spirit. So in the book of Genesis, when God created us, it said God created us in his own image, both male and female. And what that means is all the attributes of masculinity flowed from God's spirit. And all the beautiful aspects of femininity flow from his spirit. God uniquely made us as body, soul, and spirit. Now, there's a totally different way of looking at this. Other religions say that your energy, and 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you might have been a man... Now those energies have been deposited into a woman. hundred years from now, you'll be a mosquito. hundred years from that, you might be a cow. And so your individualities, you are not your body. You are not your soul. You're not your spirit. You're just energy that gets put into different containers. Christianity says you're uniquely made for who you are. You are special. You are eternal. You have value. And God made you very unique. And so your, your, your sexuality is a gift from God, and it flows from the very nature of God. But Jesus even likened that when he was looking at his town, Jerusalem, he said, I feel like a mother hen. I just want to wrap my arms around you like chicks and protect you. Again, affirming that the femininity, the motherly instinct, the fatherly instincts all flow from the same God, a God who is spirit. Now, it's interesting because if you study history, there's a general by the name of Pompey. And he's coming in around 60, 70 B.C., and he's going to obliterate Jerusalem. But in doing so, he cannot believe how devoted and courageous they are. And for a Roman general to think you're courageous, that's saying something. And he's used to Zeus and Demeter and all the other gods and Jupiter and Saturn and the names they had for the Greek gods. He cannot wait to barge into the temple and see what kind of a god, what kind of a statue the Jews must have that inspired such strength and such courage. He comes into the temple covered with gold, and even as they're being besieged by the Romans, they're still operating and doing their worship services. He wanders around, no statues anywhere. And Pompey is shell shocked to discover that Judaism and Christianity doesn't have a statue God, because if you make your God out of brick, or make your God out of wood, or make your God, then that God isn't your maker, you're its maker that God is spirit. And Pompey begins very, very intrigued because he's never heard of a God that's a God of spirit. So this is unique. It's unique from the Greeks. It's unique from the Romans. A good God, unlike Zeus, who is good and evil, we have a God who is now spirit. And he's not something that you make. The very opposite. He's the one that made you. All right, let's look at our next question. Question number three. Hi, my name is Emerson. I wonder why we have to always (laughs) obey my parents when I don't think it's fair. My name is Noah, and I wonder why me and my brother, like, do different things. Like, I went to golf tonight, and he went to soccer. couple questions in there. So number one, first question she said is, you know, I don't think it's fair. So notice again the appealing to it's not fair. We should know what fair is. And I don't think it's fair that I, I should have somebody else tell me what to do. So notice again, there's that standard of fairness that we all appeal to. And God says that idea, whenever you say that's not fair or it should be a certain way, you're tying into an attribute of God. Book of Romans says there's no partiality in God. He is fair. And when you appeal to that standard, you recognize that he's written on your hearts This desire for fairness, that's where fairness comes from. Now, to her question, why do we have to put up with parents telling us what to do? Because God gave us parents to teach us that we're people under authority, and the world doesn't revolve around us. And we need to learn this as kids, we need to learn this as adults. When you try and be your own authority, it causes trouble. In fact, you don't break the law of gravity, you discover the law of gravity, right? In the same way, parents are trying to guide us and direct us, and our Heavenly Father does the same thing, to say when you decide to determine your own truth or determine your own way, it causes pain. And you end up reaping what you sow. So a parent's job is to say, let's experience a little pain now by running into some reality so you learn the lesson before it turns into a lot of pain later. Here's how it says it in Galatians. This is so reap principle that's designed into the universe. And as parents, our job is to help our kids learn how to sow well, but also reap well. And when it's a bad sowing of a bad decision, to reap of some pain to learn the lesson. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. In due season, we will reap. So part of the role of parents is to guide and direct, teach us how to be people under authority, and also teach us how to reap what we sow when the consequences are small. Now, the last question there is, why does my brother like golf and I like tennis, I think it's back to the idea that we're made in God's image. It says in Psalms, it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows that very well. And this Christian idea that you are an eternal individual that is individually made by God is why some of us will have certain passions, certain interests, and certain personalities. God wants you to find that your full purpose is discovering what you are made to be, and there's no other version of you that will ever exist in all of the world, in all of history. And because of that, you have purpose and meaning. And this is so unique. This is different from the Hindu view of personality. It's different from the pantheistic view of personality. That you will exist in heaven, we'll get to this in a few weeks, with a real body in heaven, not energy, but a real body. You'll be put back together, body, soul, and spirit, in eternity. There is no other religion that even makes claims like this. You're an eternal being that will spend eternity, and God wants to spend eternity with you. That's one of the reasons we're so unique, because we're made by a very unique and individualistic God. So, what do we learn here from that? Well, we think we learn that God, in the same way he created us to be parents, he's a parent. He's trying to teach us how to be people under authority. And he's made us very individual. We are very loved. He didn't just crank us out individually doing two things at once. Because God has a very unique fingerprint on each one of us. We're not just some cog in a wheel. That's how individualistically crafted we are. All right, question number four. What's our next question for the day? Hi, my name is Natalie. Why does God create people if they know they're going to do bad or evil stuff? Mm-hmm. Good question, man. I've thought that, haven't you? God could make us do the right thing. So in one sense, God knows that the benefits of free choice, having a real relationship, not a forced relationship, not a robotic relationship, the risk of free choice is worth the downside of what we do wrong. And God, knowing we're going to do something wrong, he's already created the solution to forgive us and to fix the final problem. But Here's an easier way to say it. If I was talking to her directly, I would say, why did your parents have kids? Did they not know anyone who has kids? Have you not talked to anyone who has kids? They make your life kind of complicated, sometimes miserable. They're very selfish. They tell you that your whole schedule gets changed. All your comfort gets gone. Like, if you talk to anyone who's ever been a parent, they would say, you know, my kids rebel. They lie. They disobey. They're selfish. They want their own way. And yet your parents chose to have you. What is wrong with your parents? What's wrong with my parents? What's wrong with me as a parent? The desire to love and to expand your love and to share your love and to work with and guide with somebody who goes the wrong way, you wanted to share that love and the same thing's true of God. To which you say, yeah, but God could make it so we don't. That's right, but God knew that the benefits of free choice, choosing to love one another, offset the robotic relationship of him making us do it. We might say, I don't think it's worth the risk. But it's the difference between a real relationship and having a relationship with your smartphone. Oh, you can ask it questions. It'll respond to you. But it's not a real relationship. And back to the idea that the God of the Bible isn't like the God of the Greeks and Romans, that's good and evil. They struggle with evil, and they lust, and they have revenge. The God of the Bible is always good, and evil is the absence of good. We'll talk about more of that next week. So James says... When you're tempted when you give in to do the wrong thing don't think that god made you do it you weren't tempted by god for god is never evil nor does he tempt anyone each one of us gets tempted when something that's broken in us gets enticed away by our own desires but again even in that god knew we would rebel but just like your parents had you they wanted to guide you forgive you teach you and in god's case he had a final solution forgiving us with jesus on the cross and ultimately fixing all that's broken in our hearts in eternity, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. That's question four. All right, question number five. What's our next question? Hi, my name is Noah, and sometimes my dad tells me that we might be able to do this, and I get my hopes up, and... Sometimes we get to do it and it's not as fun as I thought or we, we don't get to do it and I get kind of upset. I'm wondering why that does happen. Why does that happen? Why are things that are supposed to be so much fun turn out not to be as fun as we thought? You know, when my kids were little, uh, they would get all kinds of toys and so we had a, a stuffed animal box and Sierra, we told her she could only have a hundred stuffed animals. A A hundred! She could barely reduce it down to 100, and every time it was time to throw some away, she threw away the little bitty, small little ones, we're trying to clear out some space, that she got from McDonald's. So I took from my brother a little little idea my brother had. He told his kids that all the toys from McDonald's McDonald's, um, Happy Meals were called temporary toys, because you're only allowed to play with it at the restaurant, then you had to throw it away because it was a temporary toy. So I I love this idea because there was less of these things coming to my house. So we'd say, these are temporary toys. They give you a little bit of fun for a little bit of time, and then we throw them away. Temporary toys. Well, in one sense, the older you get, the more you find out that everything's a temporary toy. Oh, they cost more? They last a little bit longer before they're no longer fun. But you find out everything's a temporary toy. I mean, I knew for sure I would finally find full and final satisfaction in sixth grade if i could just get that imperial walker from star wars empire of the strikes back. I mean if you don't know what it is, maybe you're not a geek like me. This is what an imperial walker looks like. Look at that thing. Isn't that awesome? I knew my parents couldn't afford it, but grandpa, he worked overtime overtime that christmas and i opened that gift and my jaw dropped at the glory of the Imperial Walker sitting before me. I covered the basement with white peanuts. I brought out my video camera. My, we, we filmed our own Empire Strikes Back with white peanuts with that Imperial Walker. And it was awesome. And it was fun for about six months. I need something new, right? We just have newer stuff that sounds fun. The Lamborghini fun. It is fun. But then maybe it's time for a, a second house. A bigger car, uh, nicer clothes. I was uh, reading an interview with uh, Clint Grisham. He said his whole life he worked and worked and worked to get the Super Bowl. Finally wins the Super Bowl. All those playoffs, all those attempts. He's sitting in the locker room. He's got a Super Bowl ring. He's like, yes! And a couple hours later, he's like, I thought this would feel even better than it does. It feels good. But just by the next day, he's like, huh, my whole life for this ring. I just thought it would last longer, the feeling, that it would mean more. I mean, this is a Super Bowl. You see, everything is a temporary toy. C.S. Lewis says it this way, If you find in yourself a desire that nothing in this world can, can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that you must have been made for another world. That there must be something outside of the domino game that you were made for. A God-sized hole, an eternal-sized hole that temporary toys, no matter how beautiful, no matter how expensive, no matter how many you have, it won't fully and finally satisfy. It says that in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity into your heart, and no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You can try and fill your life with anything temporary, but it's ultimately going to lose its glory, lose its fun, because you were made for something eternal you're made for another world. So whatever God is, He's eternal. And you can see that in your own longings. Even if you don't call yourself a a religious person, you can feel the longings. I'd say, try and fill that hole with temporary things. It'll last for a little bit, but it'll never fully and finally satisfy, because you're an eternal being with eternal desires. So, what about God coming close? comes to our next question. Question number six. My name's Gabby, and I was just wondering what year Jesus was born in. So here's another unique uh, teaching of Christianity is that God came and became a human being to get close to us. Now, if you're Islam, Islam believes that God's outside of creation, but it's blasphemous that he would come near us. That's why Christianity and, and uh, Islam are so unique. They, they agree God has to be outside of his creation, but man, it's blasphemous that the God who's transcendent would come and dwell among us. That's unique to Christianity. So when was Jesus born? Well, this is actually an easy question and a complicated question. So we can thank uh, the AD-BC system to this man, this monk in the 6th century, Dionysus. He wanted to take all the calendars, the lunar calendars and the the Persian calendars and the Babylonian calendars and help us all kind of get on the same page. It's very complicated from civilization to civilization. So he developed the BC-AD calendar. So when was Jesus born? Right there right? Between B.C. and A.D. But he missed it. He missed it by a few years because it was the sixth century and it's not exact. So, the Bible doesn't claim Jesus is between B.C. and A.D. Here's what the Bible claims. That God, the Word that made all things, the Word that was God, and the Word was with God, came to dwell among us. It became flesh to dwell among us. So, when did God come to dwell among us? When was Jesus born according to the Bible? Well, it gives us some hints, but it doesn't give us a specific date. It says that Jesus was born during the days of Caesar Augustus, during the days of a guy named Quirinus, and the days of King Herod. Now, this is not like Star Wars or some fantasy tale a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. These are real people in history, and these are movers and shakers in history. These are not small names that are mentioned here. And so we have tons of archaeological evidence for all three of these people. When did Caesar Augustus live, when did Quinius live, and when did Herod the king live? I'll just give you a few of these, and you can download the slides later if you want. Julius Caesar dies in 47 BC. His adopted son, Caesar Augustus, lived until 14 AD. So sometime before 14 AD, Jesus was born. We have coins with uh, Caesar Augustus's uh, face on it. 19 BC, so we can start tracking the the lens of when was Jesus born. The inscription, when Caesar gave out a census, we have actual inscriptions of different censuses he's done that date to that time period. We have tombstones. This tombstone is probably the tombstone that archaeologists think of Quinterus. So Quinterus was a real person, lived in a real time. We can carbon date that to figure out the date. And Herod, if you've been in our last series on greenhouse, you can see we had lots of evidence of Herod. But Herod's all over the place. There's Greek inscriptions with his name. There are coins with his uh, name and his emblem on it. There are uh, different pieces carved into the rock. This piece from Masada, as we looked at a few weeks ago, Masada's an actual mighty fortress on the Dead Sea that has Herod all over the place. So you put all those pieces together, and when was Jesus born? Well, somewhere between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. Because it has to be between the census of Quinterus... Mentioned in Luke, and the death of King Herod, and he chases Jesus when he's two years old and trying to kill him. So, if a kid asks you, When is Jesus born? BC AD is the specific answer, a little bit more detailed answer somewhere between 4 BC and 6 BC. All right, last question for this morning. And here we find out that God came near very unique to Christianity, that God came near. He wants to be close. He wants to not just have us obey him or, know, or to know about him. He wants to know us personally, so he became a person for us. All right, last question. Question number seven, also about Jesus. Hi, my name is Griffin, and does Jesus still have holes in his hands like in heaven? Does Jesus still have the holes in his hand? We'll talk about this in in about four weeks when we get to heaven. But all of us will be fully restored. We will not have Alzheimer's. We will not have bad knees and bad hips. We will recognize each other. If you can't eat anymore as you're aging, your body gets restored. That's the new hope of the new body. The only person who has scars in heaven is Jesus. Jesus. The Bible tells us he still has those scars. Uh, The book of John, uh, John's writing in uh, the book of Revelation, he has a vision of heaven. And he says, when I saw Jesus as the lamb in heaven, he looked like a lamb who had been slain. He still had his markings of being slain. But Jesus, after he raised himself from the dead, he appeared to over 500 people at once. We have multiple historic documents from multiple angles to support this idea. And it says that his disciples had questions. They had doubts. Who wouldn't? He says, guys, here's the evidence. Come look at my hands. Thomas, Doubting Thomas, you've heard that phrase? He says, Doubting Thomas, look at my hands. Reach your hand right here. Touch it. Put it in my side. I've still got my marking, with they put the spear through me. Don't be unbelieving. I want you to believe based on the evidence. We'll get more into that in a few weeks when we talk about the Bible. So, what if we conclude about whoever God is through just general observation, through philosophy, the unique vision of God is he needs to be outside, he needs to be free, he needs to be uncaused, a designer, an artist, an engineer, he's spirit, not an image you make, he's good, not evil, he's a parent and father, he's eternal, he's close, he's real, and the number one thing the Bible describes is He is love. And wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, whatever questions you have today, God wants you to know that he is love, he wants you to know his love, The love that he came to earth to die for you and I. That's why he has those holes still in his hands and feet. Because our God doesn't watch from a distance for us to get our act together. God got in the game and demonstrated his love for us. Your value to him. Even when you don't have your act together. Even when you've been trying to replace him with temporary toys. He pursued you. He loves you. God wants you to know that he is love and the whole purpose of your life and mine is he wants to change your inner world as you discover what you were made for. You and I were made to love God. Here's what he says it. God wants you to know he is love and that love can change the world. God is love, John writes. And Jesus says, you want to know what life's all about? The greatest commandment. Everything else in the Bible is summed up right here. I don't want you to just obey God. I want you to learn to love God with all your heart. All your soul and all your mind. And when you learn how much God's loved you, you love him back. And then you're able to love other people out of the overflow of how much he's loved you. And that love will turn the Roman Empire upside down. From Pompeii to Nero, this whole Roman system gets flipped upside down because Christianity and the love of God changes the world. And God wants to change your world as well you to understand that this there's real evidence there are real answers for the real questions we ask well that's what we want you know horizon we're trying to comfortably connect people to god through the bible and the community of growing christ followers and so part of that is we are yours to explore And we think the best way people learn is by asking questions. So I'm going to try and take some questions and answer those questions at the end of each service. And if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you I don't know the answer. I'll do a little research and I'll come back next week and hopefully give you better answers. So, all right, let's see. What's our first question coming up here that got texted in during the time? Oh, over here. If I have God-given purpose, why do I feel lost even when I'm seeking? And that is a great question. I think for a lot of us, we feel that. It's like, well, how do I find my purpose? What is our purpose? Like I said earlier, I think a lot of us, we try and switch. And so you'll see a lot of times you'll, you'll go to a psychologist and they'll say, well, you just have the wrong temporal toy, <laughs> right? So you've been building your identity on your family. You need to actually get into a career. And so you okay, well, maybe career will satisfy me. And, well, you've been careering for so long. Maybe you just need to go and, 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 and find yourself, have some time for yourself. Now, those are all good things. But all we're really doing is shuffling the cards of different temporary toys. So the real question is, is this thesis or hypothesis that the Bible proposes true? Are you an eternal being that has eternal desires? And if so, what would it be like for God to meet that desire? And then that's not like a light switch. It's like, I got to discover that. What would it mean to love God? What would it mean that all of a sudden the things I'm already doing are an expression of that purpose? I've got a a son with special needs. It's wearing and exhausting. What if I begin to see that as an expression of what you've done unto the least of these, Jesus says, you've done unto me. The moments I'm worn out, the moments that I'm out of energy or compassion or patience, I say, God, I'm out. I need some access to yours. And I try and bring his purpose into the everyday circumstances. So uh, I can talk more, whoever wants to address that question in the hearth room afterwards. But I think that's, are we trying to meet a temporal need or an eternal need with a temporal need. And then number two, how do we discover that? If Jesus really is, if God really is who I want, how do I incorporate that into my everyday living? So it's not just I have spiritual activities and non-spiritual activities. That's what the Gnostics did. How does everything become a spiritual activity? And what's next? What are we to think about when God doesn't heal? Angry and Frustrated? Obviously, if there's a supernatural God who can heal supernatural things, then he could. So why doesn't he sometimes? We'll talk a lot about that next week. Sometimes God heals, sometimes he doesn't. When Jesus was here, he shows up to the pool of Versailles. There's hundreds of people there. He only heals one. Why is that? What's unique about the Bible is it says that, (laughs) yes, God knows best, but you don't have to understand that. And when you don't understand, it's okay to be angry. There's entire books of the Bible about why it's okay to be angry and express that anger to God. I remember when I first got married, my first year of marriage, my wife had lots and lots of health issues. It was very frustrating. We had followed the Bible and followed the rules, and this is what you, what we get for it? I spent many, many an evening up on the top of my apartment complex in Chicago yelling at God at how unfair it was and why he wasn't healing and wasn't healing quicker. I read books like, (laughs) there's a book of the Bible called Lamentations, which is really saying, God, you're not my comforter. You're not doing the right thing. And yet, right, I got to chapter 3 of Lamentations. and In the middle of this kind of tirade against God for not doing the right thing, he says, but this I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. Like, I want some of that hope. His mercies are new every morning, new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. If you grew up in church, you may have heard that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We did it at our equipping service today. That's written by a guy who's yelling, screaming, beating on God's chest that he won't do what he's supposed to do. And Christianity offers something really unique. Most people, if God doesn't do what we want to do, you kind of abandon him. You know, I'm just going to give up on the whole thing. Religious people get angry at God, but it's like, well, it's not appropriate for me to be angry and express that. The bible has what's called lament psalms the book of lamentations the book of habakkuk which says it is psychologically healthy for you while living in this broken world we'll talk about the next week to express that anger and frustration to god so as simple as it is it's okay to wrestle with god in fact uh, israel which is where we get the, the nation's name was a guy's name named israel and his name literally means one who wrestles with god so sometimes growing and doubting and growing in your faith is about wrestling with god next up What is heaven going to be like? I'm going to postpone that one. We're covering that on week five of the series. The entire week is about that. So I'm going to postpone that one. Why does the Old Testament God seem so different than the New Testament God? Well, I think because it's covering so many um, years that most people say, hey, the God of the Old Testament is angry and mean. He kind of likes throwing lightning bolts at people and killing people. So let me just give you one example. The book of Jonah. Jonah. The book of Jonah is called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. God comes to Jonah, says, go to Nineveh. Let me tell you about Nineveh. Nineveh was the place his enemies lived. That was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians had just drug his family, drug his family. Literally, they had meat hooks they would use and drag them across the country. His enemies have have tortured his family. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, address their wrongdoing. And Jonah's like, I'm not going to go talk to my enemies. And you get to chapter 4 and you find out why. In chapter 4 he says, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. If I told them that they were doing what's wrong and I told them you weren't happy with it, I knew you are a gracious and merciful God and you would forgive them. And the Ninevites repent or turn or change or admit they're doing the wrong thing and God forgives them. So the Bible sometimes, even in the Old Testament, they struggle with God why are you letting good things happen to bad people? But other thing, God, why are you giving so much space for bad people to turn around? So sometimes you only have heard enough of the Old Testament to kind of um, be frustrating. You hear about a couple wars in Joshua or 1 Samuel, but the entire book of Jonah is a God who loves your enemies and wants you to love your enemies more than you love your enemies. I right, see if I've got time for one more. I'm out of time. Let me see the last one. If God knows everything and has it all worked out, then what is the point of praying or talking to him at all? If I can do this in one minute. So you, I'm going to postpone this one next week. I'm going to start this one next week because I don't want to shortchange this one, or I'd be delighted to talk to you in the hearth room afterwards. So again, thank you for being with us. Thanks for sharing your questions. We'll keep compiling these each week. I want to pray for you, and we'll continue next week. Father, thank you for uh, just a place that we can be honest and real. God, I beat on your chest many a time, Father, and I just thank you for being my dad. And, uh, given me the space to be frustrated and father i just ask for each person on their journey they would seek you they would grope for you and they would find you and that you would draw near to each person who's genuinely seeking after you this morning we ask this in jesus name amen we see you next week we're going to cover pain evil and suffering primarily next week thanks for being here.